everybody doing? Yeah, happy new year. So, so glad to be in 2022. Leave all that 2021 behind. Man, it was an amazing, like Dave said, what an amazing Christmas Eve gathering. It was a little nerve wracking, but I couldn't, I don't know, he must have been able to, I think it was still a little light outside. I could see no one. Like, because the, the, the lighting system that AVL had out there, I could see the people that were in the front. I mean, I could see Mark Giuliano j- jumping around and having a good time. Um, but that's about it. I couldn't see anybody else until I had everybody do the wave with lights. And then I was like, there's a thousand people out there. And then I got nervous. Um, but it was really amazing. And what a representation of the church and the body of Christ. And um, it was super cool just to see it, the light of Jesus and to, to have the pageantry of Christmas collide with like the real meaning of Christmas in a, in a really beautiful way. Like all this actually makes sense and matters. Um, and just have the community there. It was super cool. And we, God willing, we will be doing that a lot. Like that will be our, you know, our annual thing if we can do it. And I don't think the city can deny it now because it was pretty awesome. Like they'll be like, yeah, if we shut it down now, those people had a lot of fun out there. They're going to complain. But uh, if you've got your Bible, turn me to Ephesians chapter 4. Also, um, if you want to flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as well, we're kind of, we'll kind of be in bouncing around in, in both of those uh, today. And, you know, it's just speaking of, uh, of Christmas, who, who went out of town for Christmas Eve? Like you, you travel like at, on Christmas Eve, like two people. You live here. Everybody comes here, don't they? You live near the beach and live it. We're all going to Florida. Yeah, that's a great place to go. It's, it's like 80 degrees and people are running naked on the beach right now um, in December. It's fantastic. Uh, but we, we traveled a little bit. We went to uh, South Georgia about three you know, three hours from here on my uh, in-laws' uh, farm, which is awesome. It's a multi-acre farm. It's got animals, and you know, you know, kids have grown up going there. Um, and now the family's big. Lots of cousins. Lots. I have lots of nieces, nieces and nephews. Sleep on air mattresses, but it's amazing. I mean, you you see, it, it was so clear. The weather was beautiful. You could see every star in the sky at night. We had fires at night. It was amazing. But it reminded me of how my kids grew up. And in the summertime, my in-laws would, would hold these little camps. They would have girl camp and boy camp, or what they called man camp. Um, and my father-in-law uh, uh, was a Marine, or is a Marine. You don't ever say was a Marine to a Marine. Uh, he is a Marine. Uh, and he still, I mean, he look, if you saw him, and you, maybe you've seen him when he's come here before, I mean, he still, he, he can roll in with fatigues and has probably uh, 35 different types of Marine t-shirts. Um, so he is fully Marine. And the, when the boys have man camp, they're weak. It is survival camp. And you can imagine a Marine knows how to survive. Like he, he knows how to get it done, maybe to a degree that the boys didn't need. Uh, but he, it, it, it's like full on. Like they have to go out on their own. They got to shoot something like legit. They've got to skin it, cook it, and eat it. I mean, that's part of survival camp. They got to fish, catch fish, clean them, uh, cook them, and eat them. Some of the men in here are like, yes, can I sign up? for man camp, all of my kids, for the entire summer. Um, it, it is amazing. It's amazing what they do. But they go through all these survival skills. And for the girls, um, they, they have their camp too. Girl camp is inside. They learn how to cook and sew. Now look, before you email me and I have to spam block you, um, they, they reverse it also. Like every second or third year, the girls do man camp or survival camp and the girl the boys go in and they do home ec and they do their cooking and sewing and all of their stuff so just one equal opportunity on the farm even with a marine so during survival camp they do like the the one of the the coolest things that they do and my my kids actually they they have go packs like if just in case like the zombie apocalypse happens like there's they're amazing they're so like 50 pounds and they have every bit of survival gear you could possibly want like I pull things out I don't even know what that is my kids are like yeah that's the flux capacitor just in case you want to go back to the future that's how you do that um, there's everything in there but one of the things he teaches them is to if they get lost how to how to not be, be unlost it's a multi-acre farm and they, I mean this is kind of scary right at dusk he they individually he would separate them and they would be at different parts of the farm on different days so they didn't get to do it on the same day he would literally get them lost in the woods 
at dusk, spin them around and get them all, you know, discombobulated. They'd be blindfolded as they walked to the place that they were going. And the whole time he's walking them there, he's explaining to them, no matter what you think about what you know about the farm and all of these acres, no matter how much you've explored and built forts out here, you think you know, but you don't know. I am going to get you lost and you will be lost. All the information that you have, no matter how smart you think you are, you will be lost. But if you have one thing with you, it will always tell you the truth. And if you know how to use it, you won't be lost. And you all know what it is. What is it? It's a compass. You don't have to plug it in. There's no app for it. Nothing. Anytime, every day of the week, seven days a week, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, 365 days a year, it will always point in the same direction. So if you know what direction it was pointing when you went in, you will know how to get out every time. You need this type of truth because you can get lost. The reason people die in the wilderness is not because they freeze. It's not because they starve. It's not because of any other re- or eaten by a bear. Um, it's because they got lost. It's be- the-, the reason they starved was because they were lost. The reason they froze is because they were lost. Don't get lost. And you need something that will lead you to the truth, that will lead you out of the wilderness, that will navigate you through the wilderness. And I say all that because we're in a series and we're going to jump into which, what I call the compass passage, which is Ephesians chapter 4. You could probably look in Colossians and Corinthians as the Apostle Paul speaks in those those passages too. There's a lot of different types of navigating language in those passages, but we all need a compass. In every generation, we've always needed a compass, a foundational building block compass, a way to navigate in the wilderness of our culture. How do we navigate our culture with grace and truth? How do we have a biblical compass? How do we lean in towards truth? Because the reality is, whether you're a believer or whether you're an unbeliever, all of us are prone to wander. And all of us are prone to get lost. Sometimes we don't even know we're lost. Sometimes we think we are, we are exactly where we are supposed to be, and we are as lost as we've ever been. And then there's other times where we get to the point where we're lost, and we have no idea how we got there. Like, how in the world did I, did I end up here? But it's because we had a poor compass. It's because it was developed. We didn't know how to find truth. We didn't know where truth was. And it's finding truth in our culture. You know, our culture is an individualistic culture that believes that there's no absolute truth, that you create your own truth. You be you. You create your own truth. Live your truth, girl. Live your truth, boy. That's what we're supposed to do in our culture. Truth is difficult to find. In fact, we don't value truth. And if we want to find truth, we've got information coming from all different directions that we get to pick and choose from and all of a sudden create that truth. We don't think we're creating truth. We Googled it. Of course it's true. But we Google it the way that we want to Google it so that we find the things that we want to find that begin to support the ideas and the ideologies and the things that we love and that support us. So truth is very difficult to find. But when you find it, it's one of the most important things. And this isn't just a now problem. It's always happened. Over 2,000 years ago, before Christ's time, anybody know history? Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, it's a romance of Shakespearean quality. But Mark Anthony killed himself. Do you know why? He thought Cleopatra had killed herself, but she hadn't. She was the one who actually started the rumor. Not so that he would kill himself, but for other political reasons and so that they could be together. But in the midst of that, he heard Cleopatra killed herself. And what does he do? Takes a knife and sticks in his gut, stabs himself, and he literally dies in Cleopatra's arms. Fake news has always been around. People have literally, there's rumors that people have literally almost pushed the big red button. You know what I'm talking about? Nuclear warfare on bad intel. In and around the time of the Bay of Pigs, it almost happened. Fake news has always been around. Finding the truth, and look how important the truth is. And really important people, people that all of us love, like Elvis Presley. He values the truth. Truth is like the sun. You can't shut it out. For a t- you can shut it out for a time, but it ain't going away. I like Elvis Presley. This next one's my favorite because he's super trustworthy. It's Ice Cube. <laughs> truth is the ultimate power. When the, truth comes, when the truth comes around, all the lies have to run and hide. I love that. That is very true. 
Like when you are holding on to a lie, when you have got a ruse going on and you're little with your parents or a teenager and you've got something you know, going, that's the most miserable time. And then all of a sudden there's this point where you think you're going to be the most miserable when you actually confess. But that's when the enemy can no longer work because you've brought everything into the light. You've brought the truth to light and the enemy has no weapons in the face of the truth. We need a compass. We need a way to navigate in a culture where it's hard to find one. And over the last few years, I think it's been exposed that inside the church and outside the church, Christians lack a compass. We think that we have one. We're like, well, I read my Bible, I go to church, I do the things that I'm supposed to do, and that's where I kind of develop what, you know, the decisions that I make, the political views that I have, the decisions I have about marriage and sex and gender and where I'm going to send my kids to school, who I'm going to date, whatever the case may be. We have our own filter that we've developed, and we think we've done a really good job. But I think 2020 and 2021 have exposed a few of us in terms of we don't all agree. Like, there's a, there's, a, there's a big thing that's out there that kind of has opened it up for everybody where we all look at each other and go, really? I didn't think you believed that. You really believe that? But we're all Christians and believers. So are we supposed to have an aligned compass? Now, when I say the word compass, what I'm talking about is worldview. So as we go through this series, I want you to see that both of these things are equal in my mind in the way that we think of them. A compass and worldview are both the same thing. They're both the same thing. So as I talk about it and I use the term compass, what I'm talking about is worldview. The best definition I, I, I have of worldview, the shortest, succinct definition, is a worldview is a system of beliefs that answer the philosophical questions of God, man, and the cosmos, which influences how a person relates to and interacts with the self, others, in the world around them. A worldview is, are the things that we collect along the way, subconsciously and consciously, the way that we grew up, the things that we gather as we get older, the friend groups that we, we develop a worldview based on the people that we hang out you know, with in the backyard and drink beers with. That's the kind of people, the people that we choose and we lean towards. We develop a worldview based on the research that we, we do along the way when we're in college or you know, when we're in our job. The, the environmental factors that create our worldview, religion obviously creates a baseline of worldview. The people that we marry, we combine with them as one flesh, that begins to add to the worldview. There's a lot of things that build into and create a worldview or a compass for you and me, and it becomes the filter in how we make decisions. But growing up and living in a world and in a culture that has no real value for truth or at least absolute truth. It's more about individual truth. You create your own identity, who you're going to be through your success and what you decide you want to be, how you feel. This is how I feel. This is where my desires are. So this is, what, this is the person that I'm going to create for myself in the, in the way that I live life. And we get to, to make and create our own identity. You live your truth. You live yours. I'll leave you alone for you to do your truth and I'll do my truth. Living in that culture, in that world, how do we have a unified or a solid compass for us to make decisions on what we think about sex, what we think about marriage, what we think about gender, what we think about political views, sociological issues, economic issues, how to raise our kids, how to navigate our marriages, there's so many questions. There's so many things that would, what job or vocations are, are okay? Is this where God is leading me or is this, would God lead me away from this? How do we make some of those decisions? Well, what we currently do, what we do all, every day consciously and subconsciously is we use some sort of compass that we've built, some sort of worldview that we've built to navigate the world and to answer those questions. And a lot of us in the room and a lot of us inside the church and outside the church, if you filter it, through your compass, we make a lot of different decisions. Ones where we look at each other and go, I wouldn't have done that. You know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have moved, gone, gone this direction. Or that's not the way that I see that. That's not the way that I think that that, that's not the way that I would interpret the Bible. Ooh, I wouldn't see it that way. I don't look at it that way. 
So we need, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if we had a compass that we could create, one that was, that's, that was unified on Christ, that was unified on the biblical truth that we say is our 100%. This, is, this should be our filter. How do we develop that? How do, we, how do we build that compass? Well, I love where we are in Ephesians chapter 4 because the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament specifically to help build a worldview in a time that they needed it just in the same ways that we needed it. He wrote it in 62 AD from prison in Rome, and he wrote it to the surrounding churches in and outside of Rome, like Ephesus, the Colossian church, to the Philippians, Thessalonians. And a lot of what he said was navigation language. How do you navigate? Since you've been raised with Christ, how do you navigate in a world that's coming at you? And in their day, just like our day, it was polytheistic. In other words, they had lots of gods. And you're like, well, there's not lots of gods. I don't think about lots of gods in the United States of America. We're founded on, you know, in God we trust. That's, that's who we are. No, we have lots of gods. We have lots of things that we lean towards that we've elevated as the most important thing. Things that we worship more than Jesus. That's what gods are. So yeah, we live in a polytheistic culture. And we live in a chaotic culture. They lived in a chaotic culture. You think about it, Nero was the emperor. I mean, his mom ousted him onto, into the throne by killing her husband. That's how Nero ended up in, and, and it was just, there was people, the, the backstabbing and the stories of the Roman Empire at the, the turn of that millennia are crazy. I mean, you think we have crazy government and crazy stuff. You think we're sitting around going, I just can't believe he's president. You know, I mean, because that's the statement that was made. Everybody's quiet in here. I mean, it doesn't matter who you're talking about. You could be talking about either sides. There's people on planet Earth going, are you kidding me? He's president. We've done that. Since Ronald Reagan, people did it with him. They're like, last time I saw him, he was in a movie with a monkey. And now he's president. I mean, and people see Ronald Reagan as one of the greatest presidents of all time. But look, they were in the same time period, dealing with the same things politically. Nero was, we think we got it bad. Nero was crazy. I mean, Rome burned. He actually burned it and he blamed Christians for it. And then he had a good jolly time lighting Christians on fire on all the roads to Rome. He lit up his own garden with Christians burning. They lived in a persecuted time, a time when they needed a compass to figure out how do we navigate through this culture. There's some amazing art in the Roman Empire. There's some amazing technology. I mean, they were innovative. So what do we absorb and what do we reject? What do, how do we navigate through that? They needed a compass just like we need a compass. So if you got your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4, he jumps in. In verse 11, he's responding to how do we live? He's just said in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, just describe the glories of the gospel in, in, in the most beautiful way. And that, now he's talking about the implications of the gospel on how we live. Like since you've been raised with Christ, since your life has changed, this is possible for you. And this is how you can navigate. This is how you lock into the things that God's provided or ordained that will help you navigate. So he says in verse 11, he says, so Christ himself, to help you navigate, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. He gave, he put people in and around you, in the church, put them broken people, but God in his wisdom, and because God is amazing and wanted to glorify himself through broken people, appointed human beings that were sinful to be the teachers, to be the, the apostles, to be the pastors, to be the leaders, to be the evangelists in the church that would lead people. He says, these people are going to help you, and they're going to do it in specific ways. And Christ is going to be the head of the church. Jesus himself is the one leading. And there's going to be a structure to it. And this is how things are going to go. And so as I was reading this, I was like, okay, this is the, the, the first part of kind of putting the compass together. Is that he's giving the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. What's he saying to these pastors and teachers and evangelists? Well, good thing you interpret scripture with scripture because... The main bishop for Ephesus, who this was written to, was Timothy, and Paul wrote directly to him as well. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's talking about the exact same thing. So if you flip over there, so we're going from Ephesians 4, 11, into 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says to him directly, 
He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I will give you this charge. He's like, Jesus is coming. Prepare yourself as a preacher and a teacher. He says in verse 2, preach the word. Pretty good instruction. Be prepared in season and out of season. He says, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Now, in 2021 or 2022 now, we love encouragement. I mean, I do. I like to be encouraged. It's fun. You know, you preach on Sunday and you get a nice email afterwards. It's great. Encouragement we love. But correction and rebuke, not the most popular thing for church leaders to be doing in the current climate. Correction. And, but it's right here. Don't blame me. It's right here in the Bible. And so get ready for it in 2022. I'm coming strong. You will be encouraged, but uh, I feel free to rebuke. Um, but you got to keep reading. You got to keep reading. He says to encourage with patience and careful instruction. And for the time will come, listen to this. This doesn't, this can't, I, I can't relate to this at all in our culture, you know. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. I mean, I know that's not us, and this is just for historical purposes, but. There will be a time that will come when people just won't put up with sound doctrine. And I know this isn't us either, but I just got to say it because it's in the Bible. Instead, they would prefer something different, something to suit their own desires. I know that's not us. I mean, we would never do that, and this culture would never do that. But instead, they, they would prefer to read things, absorb things on the Internet. They'd rather Google things. They'd rather read the books that support their own view and and support their own ideology and their politics. I think that's, that's probably what they did back then. Nobody would ever do that now. But they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I mean, I know I'm being funny, but that, that is exactly the world that we live in. And I'm not saying that I'm not in the same boat. I have to challenge myself. We all have to challenge ourselves. Are we reading and leaning and pushing towards the things that support, are we opening our heart and our mind and changing the compass? Because that's what we're talking about today. How do, we, how do we position things properly so we don't do things in the wrong order? I mean, that's what we really need to talk about. Because our tendency is to absorb and to lean towards, to read, to Google the things that tickle the ears, that are our hearts and desires, things that support things that we want. We want to we keep the good life here in America, right? So things that war against the good life, the things that we've worked hard for, we all of a sudden try to find things that support that, biblically. Like, I, you know, I want to make sure that this stays in place. But is that the order in which we would create our compass? Is that the filter that we should use? He goes on in verse 4, he says, They will turn their ears away from what? The truth. And turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. It means keep carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. Be prepared. Discharge all your duties, the duties of your ministry. So that's what he says to Timothy. As he's leading the church at Ephesus. So as these, as we said in verse 11, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. What did he give them for? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's saying you need to build a compass. And he says specifically something here that we gloss over, and partly because I don't know that we want to always lean into a statement like this. He says, until we reach unity in the faith. You know what he's saying? You need theological unity. It is important. I think we believe that Diversity, that this, this idea of diversity on all fronts is a good thing. Diversity is an amazing thing. It's a positive thing. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talks about diversity of the body. It's great that everybody has different gifts. Because, you know, if, if somebody's a hand, they're going to need some eyes. If somebody's the feet, they're going to need some eyes. 
If somebody's eyes and hands, they certainly need feet because they got to get somewhere. He uses that example. So we need the people that can preach and teach. We need the people that can be administrators. We need the people that can slap the bass, Aaron Walsh. We need the people that can sing, right? We need all of these people in the body. The diversity of the body is a beautiful thing. The Apostle Paul drives that home to the Corinthian church in a beautiful way. We need diversity in the body, but we need unity in the faith. We need theological unity. We've said this quote here so many times. A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about you people is how you think about God. Because how you think about God is where that compass gets developed, and that's how you're going to react to, how do I lead my wife in my marriage? How do I teach my kids and, 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 and lead them and grow them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? It's how you think about God. And if everybody's diverse in how they think about God, you think about God this way, I think about God this way, I think God is this way, and you think God is this way, it's a problem. And right now, the world, the culture, even inside the church, everybody's pushing against that. Like, I want to have my own theological ideas. Well, there's either truth or there isn't. It's either the Bible or it isn't. It's either Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone, or it isn't. Theological unity is, you cannot build a biblical Jesus compass without unity in the faith. The Apostle Paul's building it right here. He's, he's saying, here's the building blocks of what we need for theological unity. And he knows it's important because they are in a war. Not against flesh and blood, he says two chapters later in Ephesians chapter 6. This isn't about going to war with the Roman Empire. It's not about going to war with the other side ideologically. There's an enemy. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal from you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to put you in a hole in the ground. He wants to divide you. And the Apostle Paul is saying, let's unify. And we're going we're gonna to love, love the people around us. We're going to carry the gospel to people around us. We're going to go to the furthest out, the poorest, the most broken, the marginalized. But while we do it, we don't want to lose our bearings in Christ and be absorbed by the rest of the world. Unity in the faith, theological unity, so important. He goes on. Verse 14, he says, why? And we get this language because we live at the beach. Then you will no longer be infants, little babies, Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here or there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, what does he say? Speak the truth in love. That's both truth and love. Because I think sometimes we got people that are truth people. They like to drop the truth bombs and then walk off, drop the mic with no love. And that doesn't work. You know, I've seen them on Facebook book truth bombs. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But that was mean. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's truth in love. He knew it, does, it doesn't work without one without the other. We will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head. That is who? Christ. Christ is the one leading the church. That's where the compass starts, right? Verse 16, from him, the whole body, all this diversity that God pulls together and, and unifies us in the blood, the blood that, that broke down the dividing wall of hostility and made us unified. He's the one that's the head. And he holds us together, every supporting ligament that grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And what a great compass he's building for the church, the Apostle Paul. You know, John Piper says it like this. He says, when he reads Ephesians chapter 4, in Colossians chapter 4 and chapter 5, which are similar passages, he says it's, it reminds him of two, two different animals, the jellyfish and the dolphin. And I love this because we, we also get this language. We, if you've been around at the beach and you get, actually get in the water, I know some people just are like, I get that deep because I know there is sharks and I know there's jellyfish. Um, but if, you, if you're around, they're, they're, both, they're both in our waters, dolphins and jellyfish. Now, jellyfish... When they roll into, into, into town in, in any time of year, we just had a, a whole batch of them come through. It's not because they said, ah, you know what, I'm thinking about going to Jacksonville Beach. That's where I want to go. No, they just show up because the currents flow from Miami into our area and the jellyfish show up. Like they're, you know, kind of, they, and they can move around. They've got a little jet propulsion deal that pushes them around, but it doesn't work all that good. And they, they flow with the currents. They move in different 
places and in different directions because they have to. The water moves them. Their environment is what dictates where they will go. In fact, they are their environment. They, they have become completely their environment, completely absorbed. They are 99% water. They're jellyfish. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't be a jellyfish. Don't be a jellyfish. You will be tossed about by the wind and the waves. Instead, be a dolphin. Because dolphins are strong. Now, dolphins will leverage their world. They will leverage the water. They will leverage their culture, if you will. They will, they will take those waves. They will take those currents to take them where they want to go, to their feeding grounds, to their mating grounds. They will, for pleasure and for fun, they will leverage their world and their culture. They'll ride waves. They ride them better than we do. But whenever they want to, in a second, because they're strong, because they're built in, in just rock solid in joints and ligaments and muscles, they can fight against the current at any moment. And they travel in packs. The larger and the bigger ones travel and surround the smaller ones to keep the, the less mature ones from the predators that are all over our waters. The Apostle Paul says, be a dolphin. Leverage the culture for God's glory. And, and, and leverage the culture for your pleasure. God has given so many things that we have in our world that we can enjoy. But be able to fight against the current. And be able to know when to fight against the current. And protect the immature while you become mature. Be a dolphin. I love those descriptions. And you know what I want to do just... And with the rest of today, I want to answer a few questions. I was going to answer four, but we're going to answer two this week and next week. But I'm going to give you all four because I want to frustrate the OCD people and not answer the other two until next week. Number one, what threatens the Christian worldview or the Jesus compass today? Second, what is the foundational building block of our compass? Fourth, or thirdly, how do we continually protect our compass? And fourth, how do we humbly use our compass in a world of different compasses? That one will make a lot more sense next week, but I think some of you get that one and it will be an interesting one. All right, number one, what threatens the Christian worldview or the Jesus compass today? Now, I think we can think about that and think, okay, what is it when the Apostle Paul is talking about, you know, this idea of what we need to build around us and what we have to watch out for I think we're, we're thinking, well, we're in the information age. We've got a phone in our pocket. We've got, you know, a million different streaming services. We've got, you know, news that's not really news on television. We've got things that, I mean, we've got all this stuff, information coming at us, 90 to nothing. We've got social media with people posting things that you're like, is that true or is that not true? Probably not true. And you've got just stuff coming at you 90 miles an hour. And we're thinking, okay, well, that's probably the biggest threat to the Christian worldview or the Jesus compass today. But that's not true. The biggest threat you have to the Jesus compass and a building a Christian worldview is what? Is you. It's you. It's you. And at the center of you, still, the thing that we wage war against in our flesh is sin. Sin in our own desires. It's right there in the passage. I mean, if you look at 2 Timothy, what does he say? He says, for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Why? Why do people not want to put up with sound doctrine? Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Because we still, like, the, the, the beauty of the gospel is, is the penalty of sin has been eliminated. Sins past, present, future, annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. We sang about the empty tomb and his victory there. So the penalty of sin, gone. That is some pretty good news. And that gives us some amazing confidence as Christians that we can walk towards life and quit walking towards death. But the ability of us and the, the, the propensity for us to wander and get lost and walk towards death is still present. There's nobody in the room. And if you're not a Christian today and you're looking at, uh, I guess Christians just, you know, they sin less than everybody else. Well, I don't necessarily think that's true. We're saved a whole lot more, but we sin just as much as you do. I mean, that's just part of it. There is a, 
There is a process of sanctification that happens while we're on planet Earth. But even the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, said, I am the chief. Didn't say I was. He says, I am the chief of sinners. While he was writing the, be the best treaties of the gospel in Romans chapter 5, rolling over into Romans chapter 6, what does he say? He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, I keep doing. That was the Apostle Paul. So sin is a problem. And our own desires are a huge problem. So what we tend to do is we build and we develop ideologies, political views, decisions, relationships are around what our flesh wants. We resist things that oppose our wallet. We resist things that, that we feel like, okay, we want to be safe. We want to make sure we have enough money. We want to make sure our lifestyle is this way. We want to make sure that these things are in place. We want to make sure that all of the... You can kind of see where our whole world is developed. And we begin there. That becomes the primary filter. That becomes the primary thing that filters what we're going to believe or who we're going to vote for or how we're going to raise our kids or what decisions we're going to make when it comes to marriage or a job. Our filter is based on a whole lot of things that don't have a lot to do with the Bible. Our sin and our desire is a problem. Number two, you were correct if you were thinking this. Our culture and our personal desires often filter our biblical interpretation. In other words, we reverse the order. We take the Bible, we take a lot of the other stuff. I've got a, a diagram that will kind of show this. We take the Bible, we take money, we take marriage, we take gender, we take sex, we take a whole lot of things, decisions we're going to make, what, where our kids are going to go to school, what college we're going to choose. And we already have a cultural filter and worldview that was built in our culture and with our sin and with our flesh. And then we sprinkle the Bible in. We, we fire the Bible through it because we want to see what comes out. Also, we want to be able to defend our pseudo-biblical worldview. This might be offensive to some. Pseudo-biblical worldview with some scripture so that it supports it, so that it supports our political candidate, so that it supports the person that we're voting for, so that it supports the decisions I'm making about my marriage, so that it supports the decisions I make through life when it comes to getting a job or going from this place to that place, how I raise my kids. But the problem is, is you've started with your, your idea and your cultural filter, and you've sprinkled the Bible into it. And then you see what comes out. You've got your own truth. And that's the truth that we want to stand on. The one where we get to be right, where we've collected all of our stuff, we've read all of our materials, we've got all this stuff that we can text people, that we can Facebook people, that we can give people, and we get to stand above people believing that our way is right and everyone else is wrong. But the compass, everything's flipped upside down. We didn't start it in the, in the correct place. It wasn't built the way that it was supposed to be built. The way that it's supposed to be built is the second diagram. Everything else goes through the biblically structured worldview. Everything, every piece of information, every decision that we make should be coming through a biblical framework first rather than culture-defining what we believe about the Bible. The Bible should define how we interact and what we believe and what we absorb when it comes to culture. Does that make sense? But we have a tendency, consciously and subconsciously, to do it the opposite way. And we create a, and we do it sneakily, pseudo-biblical, cultural compass. We create one that kind of looks good from the outside, but allows us to protect the good life that we've got because of our ideology that we, you know, what are we going to do to protect this, you know, biblical construct over here? What do you mean? Oh, what you're really saying is how do we protect the good life? How do we keep our kids safe from all the evil in the world? I'm not telling you that you shouldn't keep your kids safe, but safety was never a premium in the kingdom of God if I read the Bible correctly. He said, drop your nets and follow me. And oh, by the way, you're probably going to die. So, when it comes to following Jesus, putting a hedge of protection, which seems like a biblical thing to say. Sorry, I know I've offended somebody today. I'm going to try to offend everybody together so that we can all be on the same team. <laughs> but, but 
we create this thing that we've all of a sudden put the label on it that it's biblical. But if we truly started with the Bible, if we truly started with the development of our biblical worldview, the way that the Apostle Paul leads us and the way that Scripture leads us to develop our compass and our worldview, it would look a whole lot different than the one that, we've, that we create for ourselves. I mean, let's take politics. Again, I said I was going to offend everybody. Let's take politics, for instance. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. There's nothing wrong with... We, we want to support the, the men and women that, that fight for us, support our troops. We want to support the police officers in our country. We want to support the people. We want to, our, our, even our broken, sinful forefathers, where you know, everybody's being burned at the stake, everybody that ever did anything in, in any fraction of history, and people are like, they did a whole lot wrong. And I'm like, you did a whole lot wrong. All of us have done a whole lot wrong. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't crucify everybody. In fact, we want them to pay for what only Jesus could pay for. We're all sinful. And some of them did some awful things. But we do that in our culture. We've been doing that in our culture even of late. And the reality is, is everybody is broken. And we take this political regime. But on the other side of that, we also can't, we can't deify our political pride, our national pride. You know, because I think we do that in some ways because the, the, the country that we love or we grew up loving that, you know, my country tis of thee protects the good life. It protects the good life that we've built for ourselves, that we've earned for ourselves, keeps our taxes in, under control. But yet you read in scripture, what does Jesus say about it? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. And Caesar was a bad. The filter gets developed outside of your feelings. It's not about what you want. It's, it's about what you need. And Scripture and the Bible and the Holy Spirit lead us to what we, what we need and how God wants us to lever, leverage our life for what matters most. Let's get even deeper. Let's talk about sexuality and gender. You know, I might as well. I've gone this far, right? What feels right isn't necessarily right. I mean, we, we, go, we go in that, in that direction because somebody feels this way, because we feel this way. Because we want to be comfortable, we come with all, hey, we, we, we want to love everyone. And that's always our first proposition. Let's love the world around us. We are all sinful. We are all broken. We all come with baggage. We don't want to single out anybody. We don't want to pull something up and make it this massive issue. But as human beings, as people, if you look at who Jesus was, Jesus was the one that loved sinners the best. He went to the margins. He went places where nobody else went. He went out to the people that everybody's like, you cannot hang out with those people. You cannot love those people. You cannot extend grace to those people. Do you know who those people are? Do you know you're not supposed to touch those people? And Jesus went to those people. Jesus came for sinners. He didn't come to condemn, but he came to save. He came to bridge the gap. You know, that could never be bridged. But guess what else he said? As he, as he was defending the sinful woman, it was getting ready to get stoned. He says, hey, you guys, if you're, if you're sinless and you haven't sinned, why don't you cast the first stone? Go ahead. Take a shot. And they all walk off because they know. They're like, ah, you got us. But then what does he say to her? Go and sin no more. He speaks truth in the midst of loving her with that compassion. The woman at the well was the same thing. Nobody would ever do what Jesus did. His compassion and love for that woman to meet her at noon when not even her own people would come out to the well. Certainly a Jew would never talk to her, but even her own people, her own Samaritan people wouldn't come out and talk to her. She went out there at noon because she had a past. They're like, man, don't go out there and talk to her. She is, she is naughty. And they wouldn't be around her. And Jesus meets with her. And what does he do? extends compassion to her, talks to her about life, and, and leads her to what? The wellspring of life begins to talk to her about eternal water. He's leading her to the only truth that exists, which is himself. And she says, please give me this water. And then he all of a sudden digs in. He says, you've been drinking from the wrong well, girl. You, you, you got five, you've had five husbands, and you think that's going to fill you up? You think that's going to fill up your well? You think that's the water that you need? Your approval because you've, you, you can't get enough love, you can't receive enough love? And the guy you're with now... He's not even your husband. I mean, he's digging in deep, isn't he? 
He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't stay in the place of comfort. He doesn't stay in that place that would be easy for all of us to stay. Like, I'm going to stay out of their business. You live your truth. You do your thing. No. He says, don't. You're drinking from the wrong well. And we need to be able to, with our, our re-engineered compass in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to speak, like it says in Ephesians 4, truth in love, with compassion the way that, the way that Jesus did. Lastly, for second point, we got a part two next week. When we look at this, we see what is the foundational building block of our compass. And I'll end here. In Colossians 3, I love this because I think some of us are thinking, okay, of course it's the Bible. And it is a foundational building block of the compass. But you have to surrender to Jesus first. You have to be a believer first. You have to be a follower of Jesus. The Bible is good and will teach you things morally and you probably could, could, could do some of it along the way. Like it might improve your life. It never returns void, not even with a non-Christian. But it won't last if it's not Holy Spirit born as a believer. Because the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 uses the, the word since because he's assuming that these people we're Christians. He's saying, since you've been raised with Christ, so if you've been raised with Christ, then you can set your hearts on things above. Then you can develop this compass where Christ is. Not get, get bogged down down here like a jellyfish. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. You see the compass language? He's saying, look, take your navigation. Your navigation needs to go this way. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ to God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. To develop the compass, it all starts with surrendering to Jesus. It's beginning that process of opening your hands on the things that you've been protecting. The things that you believe. Some of you have been hanging around with groups of people that have spoken to you and all of it has tickled your ears it sounds like the right thing to do because it feels loving or it sounds like the right thing to do because this is what we've always done you know this is our country or this is how we love people better this is how this is how we we even the scales in our society and, and, and love the people on the fringes. This is what we should be doing. How in the world could people think any other way? And then on the other side, it's like, how do we, how do we give up these particular things? This is what our country was founded on. We've got all of these things that were developed in our mind and in our heart, but without the biblical framework. We haven't pushed that against the Bible and said, is there anything in what I believe that, that, that the Bible might oppose? Is there anything in my conservative politics that the Bible might oppose? Well, yeah. Is there anything in my liberal politics that the Bible might oppose? Oh, yeah. Both sides. There's plenty of things that should be shaved off, that should be dropped to the floor, that should be flushed down the toilet on both sides. Because we're not Republican or Democrat. We're not conservative or liberal. We are blood-bought Jesus people. That's who we are. It's the rock that we stand on. And we have to be firm. We have to, we have to be aligned. There has to be a theological unity of faith for us in His death, His burial, and resurrection. Is what I'm doing when I'm saying things, when I'm leading people, is it leading the people around me, whether Christian or non-Christian, closer to Jesus or further away? What I'm posting on the internet, is it leading people closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus? We want to be right more than we want people to stay out of hell. We want to protect our world and our families more than we want to charge the gates of hell and shine light into the darkness so that others can be saved. We need a compass and it takes full surrender. It's giving your life to Jesus. And I'm not talking about I grew up in church or my parents always took me to church. Have you ever, like it says in Romans 10, confessed with your mouth, believed in your heart with everything and then opened your hands and said, my beliefs about this, my life about this, my money, my, 
marriage, all of it, I'm putting it at your feet. I don't know what God's going to do with it. I don't know what Jesus is going to do with it, but I trust him. He died for me. He's king of the universe. He can have it all. Have you ever done that? That's, and, and that's freedom. That is freedom. I love, a, there was this quote by uh, one of Taylor Swift's really good friends. And she said, I never, I never wanted to be famous because I hung out with her and I saw the burden that it took to be somebody important, to be somebody special, to be somebody like that. And I, I just, it didn't take me long to realize I don't want to carry it all. I don't want to be the one to shoulder it all. I, I, I like to know somebody that's doing that. She says, I don't need to be somebody because I know somebody. And I thought, man, that is, that is us as Christians. We don't need to be somebody. We know somebody. And because of that, we are somebody. But that only happens when you surrender your life, your life to Jesus. Let's stand. We're in a time in life, and we I think we always have been. Every generation goes through it. But it's critical. It is critical. Your faith is critical. I don't plead with you because I lead a church. I didn't, I didn't, this isn't the job I, I picked to make money. I, I'm doing this because I believe it with everything that I am. And I do believe that there is an enemy that wants to destroy you, that wants to take you out, that wants to crush Ocean City Church, crush 1122, crush Beach Church, crush Beaches Chapel, crush Neptune Beach Baptist. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. And we need to come together with our faith under the blood of Christ, unified in the knowledge of Him. It's why we have two two courses coming up, Bible study methods and theological foundations. That's not just so we can grow in the knowledge of, of the Word. It's that we would keep our bearings in Christ and become dolphins that can swim against the current. Jesus, just come Holy Spirit. All of us today, we need to surrender. We need to surrender our pride. We need to surrender what we think and what we've thought is the right thing. All of us at your feet allow you to make the decision. Allow you to be the navigator. Allow you to be our compass.